Welcome to the Know and Do podcast. This is Justin Barton, the host of the Know and Do podcast. And I'm really excited to get this conversation that I had with James Lee. I had this conversation about two or three weeks ago, and it was about two weeks after my initial first real interaction with James. And in that conversation, that initial conversation, he mentioned something that really piqued my interest that made me want to have this recorded conversation with him. He said that before he got married, he and his wife signed a contract. And in that contract, he agreed that he would have up to 16 children. That's a ton of children. They've ended up with 14 children, and that's up to 16 children. And I also found it very interesting that in that contract, he had it, he added an addendum that said that he could have a street motorcycle for his whole life. And so that was signed, and it really piqued my interest, and I really wanted to continue this conversation and dig a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper into what makes James tick. And I think throughout this conversation, I was able to dig into some really good information that I think is helpful to me and I hope will be helpful to to the listening audience. One of the things I want to invite you to consider as you're listening to this is their family mantra that states, or one of their family mantras, it states, you start in a place and just keep going. And they apply that to anything, whether it's cleaning a room, weeding a garden, or whatever trials or situations they find themselves in life. They just start in that place where they are and keep going until the work's done. And also another thing that really I enjoyed was something he said that says, if you have a why, then you can handle almost any how. I think that these mantras really fall in line with the know and do principle, that if I know something, I need to do something about it, or it doesn't do me or anyone else any good. And I think this conversation is one where he exemplifies the know and do principle very well in his life. I hope that you enjoy this. Sit back for the next hour and a half and enjoy this conversation with James Lee. James, thank you for sitting down with me and, and having this conversation. I really look forward to it. Thank you. So what I want to do is let you introduce yourself a little bit, tell just a little bit about yourself, and then I'm going to ask you some questions about where you come from, what makes you tick, and maybe some things you've learned throughout your life. So introduce yourself a little bit. Okay. I, defining characteristic, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I participate or I function in that way by being an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, as a part of that, um, family is, is extremely important to me. I had a wonderful family growing up, and now I have, that's what puts me on the map, I think, is my wife and I have 14 children. Oh. So. So there's something that sets you apart. And, well, that is, that is different. that set you apart. <laughs> so people always say when they hear that, they say, are you Catholic or a Mormon? <laughs> and so so we, are, we are Mormons in, the, in that way. Well, very good. So, so tell me a little bit about, you said the thing that, that sets you apart initially is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Define that for me in your words. Um, sure. First of all, it means that I believe that he is the Son of God and that um, he is the answer to the, to the human dilemma, if you will. We're, none of us are getting out of here alive and without some understanding of why we're here and what's going to happen in, in the future, life would have very little meaning. So I found answers starting at a young age in the teachings of Jesus Christ and I have, I have faith in him. Uh, and that means I 
my life, I look through the lens of his teachings. Um, all of my decisions are somehow educated or informed or I take that into account. You mentioned that that introduction, I guess, or the knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Savior came at a young age. Do you remember a specific situation that happened with that and why that happened? I do. When I was about eight years old, I was given a Book of Mormon by a, a friend. I already knew about the Book of Mormon, and, I, and my family had read it, but they gave it to me with the challenge to read it for myself uh, while I was eight years old. I had just been baptized into the church, and I believed my parents. I believed it was true, but I read that Book of Mormon, and as I read it, I just felt closer to God. I felt, um, I felt like Jesus Christ knew who I was and that um, I wanted to know who he was. Uh, in that book, there's several invitations to come unto Christ, and I, as an eight-year-old, I wrote them down. I still remember some of the scriptures that I wrote down. I mean, I, the references that impacted me, and so I, at a young age, I just accepted that invitation to come to Him, and I haven't looked back. I makes lots of mistakes on mm -hmm. the way. That's not to say that that uh, there wasn't struggles, and but that's what that's what makes it so important to me. Mm -hmm. Is uh, I just think without His redeeming power, life would not have very much value to me. Do you remember any of those specific invitations that you wrote down as an eight-year-old that stuck out to you at that I point? Yeah, I do. Um, one of them was Omni chapter 1, verse 26. Those are not familiar with the Book of Mormon, I'll just read that little verse. Um, and now, my beloved brethren, would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption, yea, Come unto him and offer your whole souls an offering unto him, and continue in fasting and prayer and endure to the end, and as the Lord liveth, you will be saved. As an eight-year-old, that had some meaning to me. So that's not typical of a typical eight-year-old. It's not. No, it's not. <laughs> so you mentioned that you have 14 kids. I do. Have any of your 14 kids that have been, I think they're all eight or older now, aren't they? They're, our youngest is eight. Your youngest is eight. Yep. Have any of them taken that initiative? Yes, they were invited, I'm sure, to do these things. Have they taken that initiative to do this on their own? They have. Wow. Yeah, they have. And we've tried to be, because it was so meaningful to me that I had done it on my own, my parents, um, they were believers, they were mm -hmm. members of the church, but I always felt like um, that was something that I had done on my own. We try to encourage them, mm -hmm. but you know, it, we try not to force them. But, I, yeah, I think my children have on their own come to have deep feelings about hmm. about God and about Jesus Christ. And I feel like when I'm not looking, my kids are still trying to make good decisions, not hmm. because they're afraid of what their parents are going to say or think or do, but hmm. because they have some personal feelings about Jesus Christ and about what he wants for them and expects of them. Let's um, go back then. Let's dig a little bit. Tell me about your parents. Sure. Why um, has why this I happened? This wonderful, I have wonderful parents. My father is a Montana rancher. He's one of these guys that works when the sun comes up and quits when the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. Just this steady, strong man. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, is a goal-setting, um, mission statement. Mm -hmm. um, let's break the thing down into goals. And what a great combination to learn how to how to set goals how to make plans and then my dad's part is just and you just work you just go at it and it, so I grew up on a small farm for the most part we um, 40 and then 80 acres 
and uh, my dad worked other jobs. It wasn't a, we weren't farming for a living, but we always had cows and pigs and chickens and animals and chores, and mm. you know we threw hay and we uh, cut firewood, and you know I learned to drive in the field and in the woods before I was allowed on the streets. Lucky. <laughs> so yeah, that's we love that. You know, we, yeah, we go out and, and cut a load of firewood just so we could drive the truck through the woods, you know, yeah. for 10 minutes. So. And this was in Montana? Or was this was, this? No, this was actually in Spokane. My dad oh. is from Montana, and we moved from Montana while I was very young. Okay. So I've been in Spokane. I was seven years old mm-hmm. when we moved out to uh, Deer Park, Washington. Mm. And your your father, what type of work did he do when you were a, a um, yeah he he did construction, some finished carpentry. Mm-hmm. He was a laborer. Yeah, uh, we always had enough. But as kids, we never knew we were poor. Mm-hmm. But looking back, my parents did a fantastic job of making do with what they had and avoiding debt. And um, my father built our house, mm-hmm. um, which of course um, is you know it, it was a valuable home. But he did it for much less than if we'd have bought it. So my um, mother would you know great at budgeting like I say very detailed budgeter and then and then she would can and um, we'd grow a big garden and have fruit trees and are there both of their parents were they from around here or were they Montana or my mother's um, moved around as a child a little bit she was born in Coos Bay Oregon okay. and then uh, they ended up in uh, in Spokane for a time and then they also were from Montana hmm. um, my father was yep he was in St. Ignatius Ronan, Montana. So they met at, well, what's now BYU-Idaho, but Rick's College. So what brought your family to Deer Park, to the Spokane area from Montana? I don't know. I don't actually remember that, mm. Justin. My dad, I, you know, he was working at a dairy at the time, so it was probably work initially brought him to the Spokane area, and we wanted to get some property, and so that got us out to Deer Park. We were in Spokane for a little while initially, and then out into Deer Park. Well, that's really good. It sounds like your father had that legacy of hard work. I admire that. Um, how, how many siblings do you have? We have. I'm the oldest of ten children. Um, nine of them living. One of them passed away as as a week old baby. So I was okay. raised with nine kids. And you mentioned my dad being a hard worker. We kind of almost kid my dad. He'd say things like, you know, on a on a Saturday morning, hey, let's let's clean out the garage or let's do this project and then we'll go to the lake. Mm-hmm. And so we'd fill up the truck with garbage, and then he'd repack it, and it'd be like a third full. And then we'd fill it back up, and he'd repack it. And, and about many times in my life, I remember 6 o'clock at night rolling into the lake. And just, <laughs> he promised we'd go there, and sun's setting, and we're getting in the, we're getting in the water. So he did. He, he loved work. And we I don't think we loved the work part of it, but we loved, we did. We loved being with Dad, and we loved the feeling of getting stuff done. And, and it's kind of... That's stuck with all of the kids, this work ethic. and So of your siblings, what types of things do they do in their lives? That's a great question. I have um, a brother who's a software engineer, just brilliant. I have a brother who's, who's a very high-end jeweler. I have a brother who's a, a, one of the head managers at a large auto dealership. I have a, a brother who works in organizational behavior, and he was in Micron, and then he does some private consulting at and um, and so um, I have a brother who's a prosthetics engineer. I have a brother who's a psychiatrist. Um, my sisters are, are uh, both really dynamic people, and both of them are mothers is their primary thing, but they're both educated and, and brilliant. So my family, the kids just went every direction Wow! in terms of profession. But it sounds like they all pursued something that 
either brings meaning or value to their lives and their families' lives. They do, yeah, they do. They have work ethic, and they all excel in whatever career that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember my brother, who's a, who's a jeweler, and he just had a love and a passion for it. And I think for a while, all of us, or even my parents, probably thought, well, what's he doing? This is just a hobby, right? And But he, he went and got all the high-end certifications, so he's a cutter and he's an appraiser. He's one of the... He appraises for the, I forget, the main appraiser of diamonds in the United States. He pr- teaches at a jewelry university huh. to train people who appraise. So he's one of the high-end guys. Wow. You know, he'll fly to, and then he'll go appraise large jewelry estates. He'll go to Hawaii. It's, somebody's passed away. and So it's just, what, but whatever they do, they've, they've all gone after it all the way. So did that start out with a love of rocks for him or something like that? Or how did yeah, that happen? He, or he just like He's artistic. Yeah, know. he's got some, he's got, maybe that's from my dad's, like he's, my dad is a detail. He's a construction, but he's a very good finished carpenter. And mm. so maybe he gets some of that from dad. And yep, that's his passion. Mm-hmm. So all of these siblings are doing all these things. Now, what did you start out doing with work? I was going to get out of high school and uh, be an entrepreneur. I was a little bit of an entrepreneur in high school and had, and had some adventures, you might say, with, uh, with that. And maybe I'll tell you a, a couple of them. I, I, uh, one of them was my cousin and I started a little business we called the Key Club Assistance Committee. It was to help key clubs raise money. And we decided at one point we're going to have a little prediction contest. So we sent out college football... Um, prediction things and offered they they'd pay it was basically gambling they paid fifty cents for <laughs> a buck they buy a thing and we throw it in and then we buy them prizes and that got shut down very quickly mm-hmm. by some gambling law enforcement so the the sheriff came to our school initially to scare us to death and then we had, we didn't have anything malicious and we weren't taking advantage but it's just that's not legal so we did some other things that were less got us into trouble but I had an entrepreneurial feeling about it and I always told my parents I'm going to be an entrepreneur and and they really encouraged us well get some education and so kind of out of obligation to my parents I I felt like well I own everything they want me to go to college so I, I went to college I went to Brigham Young University and I studied finance um, I did well at school after my first year I had scholarships the rest of the way and I had a great experience in college but my plan was Still, some entrepreneurial things. I paid for college by, I started a little carpet cleaning business and, and paid for college that way. And so when I graduated, I had several job offers, but I turned them down. And I had, a, in the back of my mind, I thought maybe I'll go to Harvard or Stanford to get an MBA. And they both wanted some work experience, not just they don't want you right out of grad school. They want you to do that. So I, so I said, what if I was to buy and sell some houses, just do some remodel or investing? Would that count as work experience? And that they, that was great. That sounded great. So I said, well, I'll do that for two or three years. And so I graduated and started buying and remodeling houses. Were you married by this time? I was. I, I was married when I was a junior in college. So we had our first two kids when we graduated. About a 20-month-old and a eight-month-old, and we were expecting. They, we had them close. We had them 14 months apart, those first three so I was doing that, and then in my church assignment, in the LDS church, we, we accept callings where we just donate our service. There's not really a paid ministry. And so I was teaching seminary early in the morning as one of my volunteer assignments. And the church education department, which they do have paid employees, they came to me after a couple of years 
and said, we need somebody to teach a class in the daytime. I mean, you're self-employed, so you don't work all day, right? <laughs> you can work, I, can, I told him, I can work any 12 hours I want. That's my half days. And so, so I started teaching as a volunteer, and I did that for two more years in the daytime. And after that, they just came one day out of the blue and offered me a position. And I told them, well, I'm not really willing to move, and I'm not really interested in the career ladder, but as long as you let me stay in the classroom, here in Spokane, I'll stay and do it as long as you like. And 22 years later, that's what I'm still doing. Wow. So do you continue to dabble in the real estate yeah, remodeling absolutely. and everything? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with 14 kids, you have to do something more than a teacher's salary. And the church pays fine. You know, they gauge it by basically what other teachers are getting paid. And with 14 kids, I knew we'd have to do something. And like I say, I was always never sure how long I'd be doing it, how long they would need me in Spokane. So I, I bought and remodeled and flipped houses for several years. And then, uh, and I keep a few as rentals. And then, uh, as I built up a few rentals, I was able to pay them off. You know, you remodel a house and pay off, you know, a house. And so I had these rentals paid off, and I decided to just start selling them to tenants. I just went and said, hey, you're paying enough. Why don't you just buy it? And we'll just turn it into, instead of a rental, we'll just turn it into payments. And you become the bank in that but, Yeah, I did. And, you know, people were happy to do that, anxious to do that. And what happens is interest rates kind of went down. And my interest rates, I was probably charged them 6 or 7% interest, mm -hmm. a little higher than a banquet because it's owner financing. So is their re credit recovered? Some of them, you know, had poor credit. Two or three years of doing that, and they would suddenly qualify. They'd refinance the house. And so I went from teaching all day, working these, you know, doing all the work myself on these houses by afternoon and even evening times. And it was just a lot of work. And then all of a sudden, these houses start paying off. I had never taken any money out of the business. I was always putting it in. But all of a sudden, I had these houses paying off, and I suddenly had money in the bank. You know, one year we sold six, seven houses. Wow. And, well, they were sold, but six or seven of them paid off. Mm -hmm. You know, they got refinanced. And so all of a sudden, and these are low-end houses, but still, this is a lot of money for me. And so I said, well, what are we going to do with this? We've got to invest it somehow. And I thought maybe we'll build. I, I met a builder I liked and trusted. I said, let's, let's buy some property and put some duplexes on it. And while we were looking at property, developed property was so ridiculously expensive. Um, we finally found a piece, and I developed it. And I was going to build on it, but some builders came and bought it from me. And I went, wow, I made as much on the property as I thought I was going to make on the house without the whole investment. So at that point, I just started buying property out outside of town, 100 to 2 acre tracks, putting into 5 to 20 acre pieces, and then flipping them, just selling them on contract. Huh. And when I got enough money from payments, I'd buy the next piece. I'm getting old enough now, I'm not interested in writing any more 30 year contracts. So we're kind of just collecting now and mm. trying to figure out what we want to do with the, with the rest of our life. But yeah, so I've been doing that. Well, that's really neat. The one, you started out with that entrepreneurial goal and the gumption to make those properties happen, and two, that you were patient with them and were able to get them paid off and just blossom from that. My experience is that so many people, when they get into that type of spot where they're flipping houses and even keeping them as rentals, they seem to keep refinancing and trying to get more until they're over their heads in debt and, and just have a big problem. What, what's different? Yeah, Justin, I'll, let me tell you something I did that might be helpful to other people. Mm -hmm. is when I was in college, my first two years, I was single, but my, the next year I was, I was married. And my wife had a degree, and she was working as a director of a daycare and making enough money to support us. I had a little job at the university working as a professor's assistant 
you know, making maybe maybe eight or ten bucks an hour, which back then was good, but it was ten hours a week. Mm-hmm. So she was primarily, you know, providing for us. But she got pregnant right away, and she wanted to be at home, and I wanted her to be at home. So I realized I have nine months to not just, uh, we're going to have an increased expenses, and we're going to have our income really cut down. And uh, that's when I got the idea to start cleaning carpets. I, we had a little bit of savings, so I went out and uh, learned how, just I went to a carpet wholesaler and had them teach me how, and I bought a machine um, and started. So sometimes necessity is helpful. It kind of pushes you a little bit, and that was the case. It, you know, a lot of people would have said, well, let's not get pregnant, let's not start our family yet, but we were very family-centered and wanted to start our family, and we just had faith that if we'd start, something would come up. And not only do you get blessed, but one of the ways God blesses you is by giving you ideas, and that's kind of what happened. So with that carpet cleaning business that you grew through those couple of years in college there, did you turn and sell that when you were done, or did you just fold up? I No, I sold the customer list to somebody already there. We didn't make a fortune, but I made enough to buy my first fixer-upper, and I bought a very cheap fixer-upper in a bad part of town. That's mm-hmm. how much money I had when I got mm-hmm. out of college, and that's how we how we got started um, into that. You know, I'll just tell you once, carpet cleaning, back then the minimum wage I think was three and a half or four bucks an hour. Okay. And so I, I go and learn how to clean carpets, and I buy this machine, and I went to an apartment complex and put in a bid and got that. That got me started. And then I went to a trailer park and I just said, hey, I'll clean your trailer for 20 bucks. I won't, but there's not, you know, they're small. There's not a lot of carpet. Nothing, but I won't move furniture for that. So you can either have it moved or I'll go around it. And so I show up the next morning. I knocked on all the doors and I told them all that. And I had a couple appointments and I wondered how I was going to do. I was nervous because I just bought this machine. And I, I, this is my first day at work. I show up. I'd never cleaned a carpet before I show up with the carpet machine in the back of my car <laughs> Plymouth Horizon and the entire trailer park is, it looks like a massive garage sale they, they, every, the furniture every, everybody moves so I, don't, I don't know how many trailers I clean but I clean from 9 in the morning till midnight at night at that little trailer park and went okay I think we're going to be okay you know when I was probably making 20 bucks an hour taking about an hour a trailer right. so at the time that was just like gold so did you ever hire people to work under you, or was it a one-man show? Yeah, um, for the most part, it was a one-man show. I did have, while I was in, while I was in school, I had another guy that worked for me uh, cleaning, and I'd go out and sell. So it was a get-through-school yeah. kind of business. And so at the end, like I say, I sold the customer list. And then even in Spokane, I, when I was remodeling houses, in between houses, you know, while you're waiting for one to sell or one to buy one, I'd clean a few carpets. I, I had the Pizza Hut, all 13 Pizza Huts in the Spokane Coeur d'Alene area and a couple of daycares, so I did a lot of night work. Kind of skipping topic here, but I want to go back a little bit to your childhood and youth. Tell me about your best friend as a youth when you were a young man. Sure. Um, when I was, uh, let's see, I, we moved when I was about seven. About a year later, my mother's sister and her family moved onto the property with us. And so I had a cousin my age, four months older than I am. So we're, he, he is a, a grade ahead because of the way birthdays fall. But Scott, my cousin, and I became fast friends. We looked similar, so people would think we were twins all the time. And we just we had all kinds of adventures growing up. We had a little mini bike, and I'd hook up his bike to my mini bike and pull him. <laughs> you know, we'd go go on adventures and, on the, the bike and mini bike. So. I can imagine putting myself in your shoes and having a cousin as my best friend that looks just like me, that kind of 
shenanigans, I would Oh, pull. yes, yep. Can you think sure. of any specific thing that you did that you might say, wow, that was pretty crazy, but we had a great time doing it, and, you know, it didn't end up hurting anybody? Or yeah, the, well, one the, the one I told you about is we started the Key Club Assistance oh, Committee that almost ended us in jail. That was in high school. Um, but even, even as kids, we would, uh, you know, we had 40 acres to go play on, and so, you know, we'd build jumps for that motorcycle, and we, we loved sports. We'd play all kind of sports. Uh, we'd go exploring. Um, you know, we found a spot in the river about a mile away from us that we'd sneak off to and go swim. We could, we could, we'd always have to have our chores and work done before, but if we got up before, even it was time to start chores. So we'd do some 3, 4 o'clock in the morning treks to the river, and just this cold river at barely light, you know, 5.30 in the morning, we'd be, we'd be swimming and playing, because we got to be home by you know, six or seven to start our chores. chores. That sounds yep. like fun. So, yep, that kind of thing we did quite a bit. Did you have a, a sports hero or a superhero type person that you looked up to as a youth? I did love sports. You know, I, um, I was a Pittsburgh Steeler fan when I entered the NFL fandom because they were good at the time and there were no Seahawks yet. So I, I can probably name a, the most part of that Pittsburgh Steeler team for you. Walter Payton was a class act and a hard worker. That always impressed me. So I named my first street bike Walter. Hmm. Um, I don't know how or what how that quite happened, but it caught on. So all my brothers and sisters, and you know, they, I was twenty one at the time, so they'd say, "Oh, are you going to take Walter?" And I'm like, I don't even remember how it got started. But so yeah, Walter Payton for his work ethic. That's great. Now you've you've referenced the dirt bike and street bike from our previous conversation. I know that having a a street bike is really important to you. Tell me a little bit about why that is and how that's developed and what you do with it sure. even today. I, I had mini bikes and, and uh, my uncle Rick had motorcycles and he'd let me ride his motorcycles and even leave them at his place. So he got me addicted to motorcycles really. And So I rode mini bikes and then dirt bikes before college. And then after I served a mission for the LDS church, when I got back from my mission, I was working, living in Deer Park, but working in town. My parents had a had an old Oldsmobile Omega, I think is what it was, that got about six miles to the gallon, or it might have gotten six gallons to the mile, <laughs> and it was put my paycheck in. So I bought a street bike, my first street bike that I, that I owned, and to save on gas money, and I'd ride that if the roads were dry, I'd ride it year round. And then when I met my wife, she liked riding on the back of it. And when we got serious about things, she told me she wanted to have a big family, and I knew what that meant because I was the oldest of, of 10, so I knew. But she made me sign a contract when we got real serious saying that uh, we could have up to 16 children. And so hers was typed. I hand wrote mine in, and I can always have a street bike. And so she signed the street bike clause, and I signed the kids. And so now we have 14 kids and two or three street bikes the whole time we've been married. So. Up to 16 kids, huh? It was like this ceiling. I, we, the, it was never really the goal. It was just the ceiling. But we actually got pretty close to the ceiling yeah. with that. So she's a wonderful mother, and kids and family were her life, and she was the driving force behind mm -hmm. that. So, And she agreed to letting you have a street bike the whole time. She did, and she rides. She doesn't drive herself, but she'll ride on the back to this day. Um, often, all summer, we'll, yeah. she'll ride on the back. So. so did you ride your bike here today? I did not. I bring kids with me to work so I like I was at SCC this morning and so I have my daughter and so I don't make them do that but I do ride I, I they're not put away I 
I rode them on Saturday. I gave them both a little ride just to make sure their batteries are charged and they're doing good. I'm that's sure that's cool. the reason why, right? So, yeah. <laughs> but I bundle up and put some leather on and, mm-hmm. yep, so I'll ride them year-round. Fun. I would kill myself the first time I got on a street bike, I think. I would be dead. I'm really lucky. I tell my kids they can't ride motorcycles and I'm a hypocrite mm-hmm. and uh, just accept the kids that dad's a hypocrite and I'm trying to quit. But they didn't have the opportunity to drive to, you know, we lived in town and they didn't have the chance to have dirt bikes and ride motorcycles. And that helped. That doesn't guarantee anything. I grew up and was very familiar with motorcycles and how to ride them. And, um, but still being a 22-year-old kid with a 400-pound bike that has 100 horsepower and you're just filled with <laughs> chemicals. Guy can't testosterone. That's just not a good combination. So by the grace of God... I survived till I matured enough, and now I ride those bikes in a in a, in a very, mature manner. <laughs> yeah, in a way, yeah, that that illustrates that I want to stay alive. Have you ever had any close calls on a bike? Sure, yeah, sure. I've never had an accidental. So you've never had to lay one. I've down? never laid. I've never laid a bike down. Wow. That's so and I, yeah, I have. I was trying to add up how many miles as I went through my bikes, and I I don't know, but I have a lot of miles wow. on bikes, and so you you're bound to have something happen. About the closest was here in town and it was only a 35 mile an hour speed limit but it was a one-way street um, and uh, I just had a car pull out wrong way right at no warning right into me and I don't know how I didn't let down or how I didn't miss it or uh, one day we'll see there were probably angels who I just there was just no time to react and I just thought I was bracing for impact and that was the, that was probably the closest call I'm not sure how I got out of that one that's a cool story I'd love to see that from from God's point of view. Oh, here's thing dragging along. You know, there's a, there's a spot here in town where there's two streets going the same direction that kind of converge into each other. And I was turning left across across that street. There's lights that control it, and my light was green, and it wasn't turning green. It was green when I arrived, and it was green when I went through it, and or, or was about to go through it. And I just had, a, I guess you'd say, a feeling. I just had a an impulse to. To stop immediately, and I stop immediately, and I check my mirror, and sure enough, there's a car just, and I, you can't really, they converge right where you, it wasn't in my mirror, mm. and uh, I never saw the car until I slammed on my brakes, mm. and it just barely, I mean, it, I slammed on my brakes and went right by me, and I, there must have been help from heaven, keeping me alive. My wife prayed me alive, so I can't leave this earth until it gets erased, I guess. Now you mentioned your your mission a little bit earlier. Where did you serve? Tell me a little bit about that. Maybe the two experiences from that that have really affected your life moving forward. Sure. Um, I served in the London South Mission. It covered South London and, and South England. Maybe two experiences or two things. First of all, for most of my mission, I had a mission president by the name of Ed Jolly Pinniger, and he was a dynamic, loving, powerful leader. And I learned a lot of leadership skills by working with him and that, that have helped me as a dad and as a leader in the church and as a, and as a leader in, in businesses that I've done. Um, that was a very impactful thing. And, and with that, one of my companions was David Covey, who's Stephen R. Covey's son. So I had access to a lot of Covey material, even on my mission uh, and then after my mission. Um, and then I just had a lot of experiences with seeing people change. Um, and I, I guess I could pick one. Um, you know, you're teaching people who are already Christians largely, and, and the basic message you have is what you have is great, 
if we have something that you can add to it, then that'd be great. That's the kind of the basic message. But here's one that was interesting. There's a there's a Jamaican fellow by the Michael Smith, and we were walking down the street one day, and um, my companion felt like we needed to go a different way. He's we need to walk up this high street, and I'm thinking, no, but we're going this way. That's the long way. And he's like, I know. I just think I just think we should do that. And so, so you, you kind of get this little inkling that oh, maybe something's up. You know, we'd had that kind of experience enough times. So I'm like, okay, well, let's see what happens. So we walked the other way, and sure enough, a, a fellow approached us. And we were pretty good at approaching people quickly. but So he had to really be on it to say, hey. And uh, he approached us and asked what we were doing, saw name tags. And we just had a wonderful experience with him over the next several weeks. And he, he joined the church, and his wife was in Jamaica. And he had to call her and tell her he joined this Mormon church, and he was really nervous about it, and so we were, so were we. It was even before, it was before he was baptized, and we were nervous because we thought she's gonna talk him out of it or something, you know, and, and so I remember coming to his house to hear how that went, and he told us, he says, I called my wife, and I told her I was gonna do something. I was worried about it, but she might think it's crazy, and, and, and she said, me too. And she had found the Mormon missionaries in Jamaica, and they were both committed for baptism on the same day, and, and didn't know it and hadn't com- um, communicated. And and so uh, I've lost track with them. I don't know where they are, but I, but I know that she was going to join him later. I left from my mission at that point, but they were both baptized. I know that, and I'm sure there that uh, there's a happy story there. But that was a uh, you know one of those moments where you know somebody's involved here. That is so cool. So. Let's kind of jump to your children here. You've got 14. We've talked a little bit about them. How old's the oldest? The oldest one right now is, let's see, she was born in 1990, so she will be turning 29. Hmm. That's right, because my wife and I will be having our 30th wedding anniversary this year. And uh, our youngest um, is 11, nearly 12, natural born, and then we adopted two from Ethiopia. Hmm. Uh, and so our youngest is one of those adopted, and he's eight. He's eight. Yeah. So tell me about that. Let's uh, let's go to that adoption story. What what made you decide? Hey, we're going to adopt, and we're going to go to Ethiopia. That is a, that's a great. It's, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'm I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, my wife and I had on our eleventh child, my wife's uterus abrupted, and we nearly lost her. It was this. It was the scariest thing. At one point. Um, and she doesn't remember because she was unconscious. But when the uterus abrupts, you begin bleeding very quickly. And the doctor says, we got about eight minutes to get this baby out. And they rush her to the operating room. And she passes out all, almost immediately. And I'm standing there. They don't let me in the room, but I'm, but I'm in the doorway. And they've got, you know, the gown and the mask on. And, and, uh, and they call for Lifebird. And they, they get the baby out. And he's not breathing. His APGARs were like zero, zero the first that one minute, four minute, five minutes. So this team's working on baby, this team is working on mom, and the lifebird guy said, pokes his head and says, lifebird's here, and the doctor yelled, this one's getting decided right here. And um, I'd, I'd given my wife a priesthood blessing that morning, and I blessed her that there would be, I said, there will be some excitement, or I can't remember the wording, but I, I had this, this very much impression that there, there was not going to go smooth, but everything would be okay. And uh, as the doctor yelled, um, this is going to get decided right here, in my mind, I started to ask, wait, what does okay mean? And I just had this realization that okay to me might not be the same thing as okay to God. And maybe when he said it's going to be okay, he meant 
I'm going to get you through this horrible thing, James. And so I was, I was, um, I was scared um, and, and frightened. But within a few minutes, um, miraculously, things. The baby starts crying at like five minutes in, and and, and they get my wife um, stabilized, and so things settle down and they turn out. And I just felt like we're all here. And I go home and I tell my kids that. Ryan made it. We're all here. We're all here. This is our family. This is it. And within weeks, my wife is saying, "James, I think there's an. I think we're not done. I think we got another one." And I just, they told us we couldn't even have it anymore. So I wasn't that worried about it. I said, "Okay, whatever, honey. You just think whatever you want to think." And uh, sure enough, she was right. We got pregnant, and that stunned me and worried me and was very scary. High risk pregnancy, and and she was in the hospital for a couple weeks before, and they delivered them quite early, but it's not well C-section early and. And so, but at that point, the uterus was done. It was totally, it was totally done. Technically, it's in her because they said, "Should we? It's, there's no use. Shall we take it out?" I said, uh, "You want to tell my wife you took out her uterus? Anybody knows my wife, and the doctor did." Says, uh, "No, we'll just not do that." But, but we could. We, but at that point, though, we knew we couldn't have any more, and we just felt like we were all here, and we had no inclination to adopt. We have twelve kids. You know, we're. We're good. That's that qualifies as up to sixteen. Yeah, that's right. That's I did my job. I you know I said never said no. Right. We kept going, and we just felt like we were like we were done, and uh, we went on like that for a couple of years, and then one day of all people, you'd think it would be my wife, it was me. I had a friend who adopted from Ethiopia, and they sent out pictures when they got here, and they sent out pictures of their kids, but there was one picture of all the kids in the orphanage. And uh, I saw my son Daniel. I, the minute I saw him, and there was maybe 50 kids in that picture, I knew something. I didn't know what yet. I just knew. And maybe I did know how I was supposed to go get him, and I was fighting that. But I, So I called my friend, and I said, do you know any of the other kids in the orphanage other than the ones you adopted? And he says, no, no, we don't really. James, why do you ask? And I say, because there's this one kid, man. And he says, did he have on a yellow shirt? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, he says, yeah, that's Danny. He's a great kid. And that's all he said. And so I went, wow. And, and, and I just couldn't stop thinking about it for like a week. And after a week, I called my friend Jeff back. And I, I said, Jeff, I think I'm supposed to go get that kid. And he said, you are, James. He is a Lee boy. We felt it the whole time we were with him. But my wife and I said, who are we to get that inspiration? We decided not to tell you. So we were just wondering how it was going to happen. So he says, when you called and asked about him, I was like, ah, I told my wife, he's asking about Danny. And so then I, at that point, I called my wife. I hadn't even talked to her about it. And I said, honey, you're never going to believe this, but I saw this picture of this African kid and I think he's ours. And my wife was instantly on board. She's like, send me the pictures. And she was just, there was no, she was just instantly on board. And, and then we played a little trick on our kids. We, because it's expensive to adopt, we, I priced out a swimming pool and I showed the kids the swimming pool. Here's what we could do. And I said, now, or there's this kid in Africa that we feel like we might supposed to get. Which do you want? I just thought they'd choose the pool. And, mm -hmm. You know, but there was just something spiritual about it that kind of hit us all at once. Um, I mean, my kids were sincerely saying, I think we do got a brother in Africa. And so we begin, uh, we proceed and... Danny's the older of the Danny's two. Danny's the older of the okay. two. And Jet, the younger one, is not his biological brother. But as we start to go through that process, you find out some things. Like, you can't just adopt whoever you want to adopt from Ethiopia. And so that put a little damper in it. But So we kind of put things on hold. And then this doctor 
Radu from Romania who lives in Portland who he never met calls and says hey if you're serious about adopting this kid I can make it happen and we kind of given up and we said what do we do and he says well you you just go through like you're going to adopt and you just put on the forms you can adopt any age any gender no uh, limitations you'll adopt whatever and then I'll just make sure he gets placed with you and we say okay great and say by the way you send in a $10,000 check to Ethiopia with that form and we don't know this guy. We don't know. And then you do another $7,000 check to a, to a local, to an adoption agency who works with. So $17,000 up front before everything else. And you don't really know if you're going to get this kid or not. So we go, we go to the temple. And for members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, the temple's a sacred place. And, and it's a good place to go ponder and get answers. And so we go to this most sacred place and we're, we're pondering it. And I just get this impression. Write the check. It's the only way. That's the only door that's open. You know you're supposed to get in this. It was just a simple write to check. Uh, but it came with some confidence. And I, I mean, it, was, it made me smile. And I was excited. And I can't wait to see my wife. And I, <clears throat> we, we meet up at the very end. You're in the sacred room. And we can talk. And I, I say, honey, we're supposed to write the check. We're going to get him. And she says, you know what? And I saw another little set of black hands with us in my mind. I just felt it. And I said, that was Satan. <laughs> I said that. And she said, Jane, we're in the temple. I said, I didn't bring him in here. And I don't think Satan can be in the temple, but, but I, was, I was not voting for another, another one. But I wasn't worried because it was so hard to adopt when you have 12 kids. And this one's, we're too old to have an infant. And I just, I wasn't worried about it. But sure enough, one day they call us after we've done some, been through some of the social work hoops. And they say, oh, we got another little kid. And he's an infant, but he'll be great with you if you guys want him. And you need another check. And, um, and I'd signed the contract of up to 16, so that check I knew I had to write. And we get Jet. They told us he had some disabilities, and they were vague at what those were. And I felt like it was this is a scam. They're just, they've got this kid who was born premature, and he's got a displaced hip, and he's mentally down, and they're just trying to unload him on us. That's what I, I thought we're adopting our retirement. But my wife looked at his eyes and says, I can tell he's fine. I said, I mean, you can't look at eyes and tell they're fine. I mean, look at the rest of him. And he's behind. There's no arguing with what these are doctors telling us. This. Oh, he's fine. So I said, well, okay, just that's what, just, you just got to know that's what we're adopting. And you, when you adopt from Ethiopia, the procedure for the most part is you go twice and you spend a couple weeks each time. And the first time you go get them adopted, and the second time you go back and get them through migrations and get them citizenship. And, and Jet was 18 months when we got him, and he couldn't crawl, he couldn't even straighten out his body. He was kind of sitting in an L shape all the time, and he was he was happy, and um, and he instantly liked me. And my wife just said, "See, he knows who he's got. <laughs> he knows who he's got." We we bonded very quickly. Jet and I just connected very quickly, and so that we didn't care anymore at that point. But we got him home, and within months he was totally fine walking. My wife says, "God just let him develop slowly, so that we could hear." We heard his first laugh. We saw him crawl. We saw him learn to eat food. Um, we saw him learn to walk. And at 18 months, that's you usually don't get to see a kid learn to eat solid food and, and laugh. And those are all. He was so delayed that those things hadn't happened yet. But and people say, well, you got him to the United States, where it was life was better. And that's true. But the other Ethiopian kids in that orphanage, those Ethiopian nannies, they they love those babies and they take care of them and they thrive. You know, the rest of the kids were the rest of the kids his age were thriving and doing fine, and he just was a slow starter. And I, my wife might be right. You know, God saved him so we could, even though it was within three or four months, he went through all those stages. We saw him go through those 
little stages. So what types of um, growth struggles maybe, growth experiences in that adoption process have you had with your family? Have there been trials? Have there been oh, yes. big victories too? Um, yes. Um, when we were going through that whole adjustment when we first got them, and first there's a year and a half, right? It was actually 14 months getting them adopted, which was so intense and ups and downs. But then when you bring them home, um, it, it's it, here's a Danny was nine years old, spoke no English, had never been to school, and, and he's losing everything in his life, every person he knows, his way of life. So the mourning that he had to go through was intense. Um, he's a little soldier who just never complained um, ever. But we saw him go through it. Our other kids also in immense an immense adjustment. You have a new brother that doesn't speak English that needs full attention at all times um, from parents and from each other. It's, it's, an, it's an intense, intense situation. And we would say we got miracles every day, but we needed them. Um, we didn't have any traumatic, horrible... It can be really difficult. I, so when I say we have difficult things, I don't mean... Um, you know, we'd read about many stories of the adjustments that it takes, and you know, these kids will, will kill your pets, and and I, you know, hoard, it just there's just lots of different things that can come with it, and you get training on that. So it wasn't that way, but just everyday life was intense and challenging. But I'll just give you an example of a couple of the miracles. When we were in Ethiopia the first time, we brought Daniel a book, uh, pictures of all our kids, and uh, we written their names out, and we learned how to do it in America. We had an American friend write it; he couldn't read, but the nannies could read them to him we thought and so he had these pictures and and he took the book and we never saw it again you just you, when you visit you don't go to their room you're just out in this little they have this little outbuilding where you visit and when we came back three months later um, we had a picture book we, you spend a couple hours with him a day and so we brought some books and there was a book with a bird and Danny he uh, I taught him to say bird and didn't speak anything so he's bird he says in a mark then he says bird and then he goes Shaney and I'm like, Shaney? Shady. And we realized that in his book that we'd given him three months before, Shane had a, but there was a picture and he had a parrot on his shoulder in the book. And so we said, Shaney. And we asked him and he knew all our kids' names. And they were pronounced with a little Ethiopian. But he knew them all. Well, when we... When we get them home, you fly out from Ethiopia, and it's a 40-hour deal because you fly out at midnight, and you go to the, you sit in the Germany and London for hours and the, all the flights, and we get, we get home. We leave at midnight in Ethiopia time, and we get home at midnight our time. So it's been 36 hours of traveling, and our kids are all awake with a big fan there. Danny, welcome, Danny. And he hugged his brothers and sisters like, like they knew each other, um, like they just had missed each other but that they were it was instant that bond was that instant and they went upstairs after 36 hours of travel and played foosball and pool till noon the next day um, how old was Danny at that time he, so he was nine years old almost nine and a half years old we had a we had another son who was nine years old at the time and these two became fast friends. They're vastly different. Danny is everything athletic and everything about sports. Caleb is more um, he loves drama and acting and reading and, and so they, they have different interests 
but um, they just became fast friends. Caleb did not like to touch people. He was our least huggy child. He was very... Danny comes from Ethiopia, and where where you'll see 19-year-old guys walking down the street, hand-in-hand, arm-in-hand, leaning on each other. This isn't a, any no sexual kind of relationship. Just that, That's just how they do. They're just very physical. And uh, and that's just really blessed Caleb, and I think it's blessed Danny. Um, it's just like they each had what they each other needed. It just stunned us. You'd see Caleb sitting on the couch with his arm around Danny, and we thought, wow, that's Caleb who just... You know, doesn't like touch, doesn't like hugging, and it just kind of helped him through that. And Danny, very charismatic and likes the limelight, but kind of nervous of new situations. And so Caleb became his security blanket, and, and he wanted to be with Caleb all the time. He, we, we brought him home in June, and we thought we'd, we'd homeschool him for a year um, because he didn't speak any English. Um, but it was time for Caleb to go to school, and Danny was like, I go, I, I go, you know, I, where he goes, I go. And, and so my wife calls the school and said, can we send him? And they said, sure, you know, just like for a day. And he wanted to go every day, and so the school said, well, let's register him, and we'll get him some English as a second language help. And so he, he ended up going to the fourth grade um, three months after he arrived because he and Caleb were not, could not be separated. Yeah. So how has that uh, educational development um, he's done really well. Um, and there's still holes, but he's to grade level in most cases. Um, yeah, he was just the star of his English as a Second Language program, and District 81 did a nice job of providing him some resources, and we worked with him a lot. Danny wanted to learn. I remember him coming home, you know, the first week of school, and he had a worksheet that was review for all the other kids that was going to take him 20 minutes. And it, it just the, it was just reviewing things like how to tell time, how to count money, how just just common things. And Danny, and she'd circle like three of them she wanted him to do, and Danny's like, no, all. <laughs> and you'd, she'd, she'd sit there for three hours with him, oh. teaching him money, teaching him all the, you know, whatever this happened to be about. So he was very anxious to learn. And so now he's in 10th grade. He's a good student. He's an A-B student. He's doing well. I think he's going to finish. He's at Pride Prep. He's going to finish regular high school. Caleb's going to go to Running Start. He's going to do some college, so they're going to have to split a little bit. But at this point, they're they're both very secure. They're best friends, but... Right. Well, that's a really great experience. That's something that uh, I think many people can learn from um, as they hear this. I think... Um, I think your kids love to hear that too. They would. They would love. I'll tell a couple. We'll put a couple yeah. stories on here in case the, they hear this ever. The um, these are these are kind of famous stories, so they've heard this. But when <laughs> we had before we adopted, we had ch- twelve children, and that was always you know you tell somebody you have twelve children, and there's this awkward pause, <laughs> and they don't know what to say, and so to fill that gap in, I I would say we have twelve children, and then I'd say and eleven of them are beautiful, only one is ugly. You know, and they'd laugh and, you know, it just eased the, the tension. But my kids had heard me say that, and I'd always say, and we never tell the ugly one which one he is, so that it keeps them all a little bit humble. You know, well, one day, the, my next to youngest, the 11, Ryan, Ryan is child number 11. He was four years old, and he comes up to me one day, and he says, Dad, I figured out who the ugly one is. <laughs> I said, who? And he said, it's Shane, but we love him just the same. So... So then after that, it was just known, Shane is the ugly one. And he does look like me, and the rest look like his wife. So those who know us kind of have to admit, Shane is the ugly, Shane is the <laughs> ugly one. But Shane is, he's very much okay with being the ugly one. 
Now, when he was little, he was really cute, and, and people would always say, oh, you're so cute. And I taught him to say when he was two and could hardly talk. When somebody would say he's cute, I taught him to say, no, I'm tough and ugly. So even, I guess we knew that was coming from, from early on. He's the oh, tough and ugly funny. kid. So. And he's your second oldest? He's number two. Second, first boy and uh, second child. Nice. So how many grandchildren do you have? So we have nine grandchildren. Five of our kids are married. Shiloh, the oldest, has five kids. And then Shane has two, and Shauna has two. Tony and Tori are wanting children. They're trying to have children, but they haven't had any yet. They'll be great parents. And, and if they're not able to have children, and it's still early in the process, but we've always wondered if maybe we didn't adopt so our kids would see how real that is. That it's, um, when you adopt kids, it's, it's another way of getting them, but they're just as lee as any of the rest are. And so Tony and Tori, I think... They know they'll have a sense. They'll they'll have been through an experience where they know adopting it is different process, but it's the same powerful experience. Uh, so they don't have any yet. And then uh, child number five is back from a mission for the church and not married yet, living down in Texas with his brothers. And child number six just got married this August. Allison uh, married just a, and our our five married kids have all married just superstars, great just people. great people, and we just absolutely love them. Yes, you have an enormous family. There have been some unique things that have happened. But from an outsider's view, I'm looking at this and going, I don't see a lot of adversity there. I see this Pollyanna-type life. How have you, and that may or may not be the case. Sure. No, I'll speak to it honestly. Yeah, but how have you, you can talk about some adversity, but how have you taught your children? Because... That's not how life is. You know, there are trials, there are, there are struggles. How have you taught them to deal with adversity and, and, and address it head on? That is a good question. And um, I'll start by, by admitting we, we have not had a ton of adversity in our lives. Um, when when uh, I was called to be the, the, the state president in the church, and the way they do this is, that, is you're called by state presidents oversees 10, 10 congregations or so. And they, they send a, le- a general church leader, general authority out to interview. And they don't know you. They just interview some people and they call you. And they ask you some questions. And one of the questions that they asked me was, what adversity have you had in your life? And I admitted, you know, just not very much big adversity. Everybody has little trials and things. But I, I had great parents. Um, uh, I Financially, my parents helped us get by. And financially, I'd always done well with my careers and then also the things I'd done on the side so we didn't have any real struggles that way and I admitted and he said well how are you going to help people how are you going to feel for people have empathy for people who who are going through hard things that you haven't gone through and I, I admitted to him right then I don't know I don't know that I would I don't think I'll pretend that I know what they're going through I don't think that'd be productive and and so that's kind of how it, that's kind of how it's been. I, I, the biggest adversity I didn't mention to him too. I lost my father, um, and he died at age sixty-four, and kind of in a sudden way. And that's the most difficult thing that I've had to go through, and that that's very hard. And so I've asked myself though, how am I going to help people who have gone through horrible, horrific things? Who maybe had dysfunctional childhoods, or who've who've lost someone who's lost children, or um, or just just all the trials that you face in life. Someone who's been through a divorce, been through a hard relationship. How do you help? So the question first initially was, how will I do that as a church leader, but also as, as a friend? And, and part of it is, I don't 
pretend to have experience that I don't have. Um, and sometimes you just you just have to say, I can't imagine what you're going through, and and just be quiet and listen. That's what you can do to help. But how do you teach your kids to face adversity as well as help people who are having adversity? And our that our family mantra is, you can do hard things. We can do hard things, and uh, and that goes for everything. Uh, another thing I get this from my mom and my dad is uh, um, when things are hard you start in a place and then you just keep going and so when you face a big job an overwhelming task at work or whatever at school well you, you start in a place and then you just keep going and if you can start in the corner or start on the side that's the best right start in a place and just keep so that's that's the family mantra now you'll hear that said in the lay home anytime and and then we can do hard things you kind of combine those two things you can do hard things when you know that there's a purpose behind suffering, you can suffer a lot. Um, and so whatever you have to go through, you can do it. And so our kids have served missions. and um, uh, To serve a mission for the church, they've, most of them have served in foreign countries, new cultures, new food, new language. And, and they'll write in their letters home. You know, they'll, they'll give us a picture of what's going on, and then they'll always say, but we can do hard things, right? Um, or we know why we're doing this. If we know why you're doing it, you know, if you know that, I don't even remember who said it, but if you, if you have a why, then, uh, then you can handle almost any how in your life, however, whatever it takes to get there, if you have a why. Is that kind of the, uh, you said, if there's a purpose behind the suffering, is that kind of what that is? That's the why. That, yeah, that's the why. If you know why you're here on this earth, and that comes again back to my faith in Jesus Christ, is uh, I believe he sent us to this earth to accomplish some things. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a mission of transformation. He's helping us grow. In a, you could liken it to an educational experience. We've been sent here to go to university. And uh, university is not easy. And this life is not easy. But when you know that, uh, that there's a bigger plan in place, and even when we don't know every little detail of the plan, we know that there's a God and He loves us and He sent us here as a loving Father and wants us to, to grow and learn and he sent Jesus Christ, we believe his grace saves us, and the way his grace saves us is it it helps us transform. It helps us become more than what we could become on our own. And so when you have a kind of a, a foundation of why we're here, then when hard things happen, there are still hard things. But you can endure hard things when you know why, and you see or at least have a sense of purpose. So in your job as teaching seminary, so youth, I'm, I'm assuming that you have had youth come up to you and say things like, what is even the point? Why, why am I even here? What difference does it make whether I'm here or not? How do you answer that to a youth that comes up to you and asks you that? Um, you can't give an easy answer. They're not looking for an easy answer. They're asking a very deep question when they come. And when they say that, and so rather than try to just answer their question outright, I try to start them on a little journey, uh, and I'll be there to help them with it. But it's their journey, and I I always say you're asking the right questions, right? You're asking the why, and there is answers. Uh, and to get those answers, you're going to have to do some things, and I can help you with them. But it's your journey, and you're going to have to turn to God and learn how to get answers directly from Him, because He promises if. You know, if you ask, you'll receive. If you knock, I'll open it to you. If you seek, you'll find. That's 
several times in the scriptures in different in different ways. And so, um, and so rather than handing an answer, I think let's teach you how to fish, so that you can become spiritually self-reliant. And then, I just think listening. And I've grown as a listener. It's not a natural inclination. I'm a fix-it guy. But through years of this, I've, I've become, and I'm still getting better at, at listening. As people talk, they think through things. and So though I, th- I think off the top of my head, those are the two big things I would try to do is help them see the journey and that they own it and that I'll be there to help them, but they're going to need to ask the questions and then I'm going to be there to, I'm going to be there to listen to you. And I don't know all the things you're going through. Even if it's similar things, um, you don't know what people are going through. And, and so, like I said, I don't pretend to. Um, I just just listen. So can you think of a, a specific situation where maybe, and no names obviously, sure. but where one of these young men or young women have approached you and said, look, I'm knocking, I'm seeking, I'm asking, I'm not getting anything. What else do I need to do? Can you think of a situation where that's happened, where there's been a door open in their lives, where a light has turned on, and it's you know that mighty change of heart has happened? Absolutely. That's why I love. That's why I love the this job. Is uh, as a religious educator, I'm not imparting facts or knowledge, um, which is good. I like knowledge, and I I, I like teaching in any way. But it, when but the religious element of it, the spiritual element of it, is has to do with that exact thing, seeing people's hearts change, seeing people's lives change, um, seeing their power to make decisions, to overcome habits, to change their direction. I work, also work with young single adults now in this position I'm in, and just, just listening and visiting and helping them see the challenge, and they decide, I'm going to college, I'm going to sign up for some classes in community college, and they're excited about it, and they have some confidence that they're going to do that, and I think that it's fun to see just even that level of things. But I like that question, and it's not an uncommon one. Of okay, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm trying, and I'm not, I'm not getting anything. And uh, um, I can't diagnose the situation perfectly, but oftentimes they they don't know um, the right questions, or sometimes they don't know how answers come. Um, and so sometimes you start with that. Let's study even from a scriptural standpoint. Um, let's just look for how answers come to different characters in the scriptures and then maybe why don't you talk to some people that you know and trust who do you know and trust and they'll sometimes say you and say okay that you're and you're talking to me so you're right on track but let's go to to me and to other people with with that question of how does how do answers come to you knowing that you're an individual and god's going to talk to you individually in, a, in his own way it's going to be different but sometimes it's good to hear other people's experiences and how answers come so that's my approach and and usually, if a kid is serious about it, almost always, I'll have the chance. Well, I'm with them, and I'm with them for years. So I'm not talking short run. The next day they come in and say, "Hey, it's all I get it now." Um, but but over the course of time, I I see them get it and understand it and help other people who are having similar trials. Um, almost always, on occasion, it may take even longer uh, than that. But by and large. I call it turning their cup up, mm. um, and it's just a metaphor define for that, yeah. Um, kids who want answers or want a relationship with God, they have their cup up. And some kids come to the classes with the cup up. They want to know God. They want to feel the Holy Ghost. They want to have direction in their life, 
and their cup is up, and they just want you to fill it. They just want you to teach them. And some kids come, cups down, especially in high school. They're, they're there because their parents want them to be there, and they don't want to be there. Their cup's down. They're, they don't want any spiritual enlightenment. They don't want your help. And so I don't try to force it on them. But you, you just try to love your students, and you just try to have a, a good feeling, a good spirit in the class. And what starts to happen is kids with their cups down, they start to slowly turn their cup up. And you have little little victories on the way, you know, where this, there's little moments where you feel a relationship could begin to develop or a little moment where where they share a thought that they hadn't had before, a new thought, you know, and they're like, well, wait a minute. And then you can start to see them rethinking. Because um, kids come with luggage. They come with, uh, everybody has luggage. Relationships and families are hard and um, life is challenging and we all get beat up emotionally. And so you don't know what they, you don't know what they've been through. But they start to rise above it a little bit, and when that happens, you're, it's an exciting thing. And, and then the next day, it's back to the cup down, and they're upset and bitter again. And, but it's incremental, and then it turns a little, next time it turns a little more even, and there's nothing more exciting than to start to see kids find, find their way. And usually that involves finding God and finding the direction He has for their life, and then that gives them momentum and encouragement and confidence and success, and success begets success, and... Um, yeah, so that yeah, that's why I, I love doing that more than I love being an entrepreneur. Like I said, I've done some, still kept some things on the side, but but I've enjoyed this even more than what I thought I would enjoy. So your path has led you in a totally different direction than what you initially. Planned. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. If I were to come to you when you were early twenties, today, James. You're going to be I'll, a seminary teacher. I'll tell you, my mission president, <laughs> I mentioned him before, who was someone I really admired. And he was a, he was a dentist, but he taught part-time at university level. And so uh, and he was at BYU. And after my mission, I was there, and he was there. And, and he said, you know, I would really like to see you think about becoming a seminary teacher. And they have a program here that you can get into during your, that you work on as part of your degree. I just said, not interested, no way, not me. You, uh, you, you saw me as a missionary, and I, I totally believe, I, but, but that's not my career. I, I'm not interested in doing, doing that professionally at all. And I didn't go through the program, and you know, then I get out, and the first thing I have is a calling to teach seminary, and I thought, well, and, and it was hard. It's teaching seminary, it was hard work, so I didn't love it my first year. And my second year, I thought, I'm going to do things a little different, and I started to like it a little more, and then they asked me to do it, like I say, in the middle of the day, and it started to grow on me. And so after four years, when they came and said, would you like to do this for a profession? I would love to. Now, I, like I say, I went into it saying, I also have a family, and it doesn't pay enough, so I'm not willing to move out of Spokane. You know, and I, we, I felt like I needed to be here for my wife's parents and for my parents, and I had some family. And so I just said, I'm not willing to move, but, but sure, I'll take it year to, year to time. And so it's continued. I've continued to grow into it a bit. So your old mission president, have you kept in touch with I him? I have. Yeah, I have. And what, what, Not what on a monthly basis, yeah. but on an annual basis. I just saw him uh, last April. It's the last mm-hmm. time I've seen him. And now he's mid to late 80s, he and his wife. And, uh, and he's known. When I first got into this, I went down to a meeting in Provo, down at BYU, you know, five or six years after. I mean, he just said, I knew you were going to do this. I, you know, and he was very open about it. I knew you were going to do it. I didn't know how the Lord was going to get you to do it, but I knew you were. So, yes, you did. You did. I admit it. You mentioned something a little bit earlier when we were talking about some of the, you know, youth coming with the questions of, you know, I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, and just not um, getting that answer. You said, 
maybe we don't know how God speaks to us. How does God speak to you, or how does God answer your questions? Oh, Justin, that's a, that's a good question. The easiest way to see it for me is looking backwards. I like to know, I'm a de- I get that from my mom. I'm a detailed person, I have a mission statement, I have goals, I like to know what the plan is. And so there's been times in my life where I've asked, what direction should I go? And, and I've just gotten either, I don't want to say no answer, but I've, I've just gotten kind of this keep going, you're on the right track. It's almost a vague. It's almost like um, you're you're in a you're in a fog, and I can see out a little ways, mm-hmm. but I want to see the big picture, mm-hmm. and so um, I just keep walking, and then uh, I can see the next little ways, and I just keep walking, and I see the next little ways, and then I turn around, and it becomes crystal clear what the plan was and why he couldn't have told me that, and I, I'm thinking in terms of where I live, what my vocation is, but also my family, just every element of my life. Looking back, it's, it's always clear. Um, having said that, though, it's always clear looking back. There is a definite feeling of when I'm making a right decision or when I'm making a, not a bad or a wicked choice, but the wrong choice, when I'm getting off course where God would like my life to go. Now that I'm 53 and I've been through it many times, I'm much more familiar with that feeling. Um, when I first started, I would fight. I would fight the feeling. I fight with it and I push it and I ask more questions and and try to talk myself into it. But having had some experiences now, I, I I'll know. And right now in my life, I don't know what's going to happen in three years from now. I mean, I really don't. In three years, I'll have my twins, my two that are in the same grade, Danny and Caleb, the, the one that was adopted at the same age, they'll graduate from high school. And we've kind of said, at that point, we're going to ask, God, what would he like us to do now? And, and we may like to do some kind of entrepreneurial thing because we've, we've, it's always been in the back of our mind, maybe for five years, do something like that. Or maybe do something in terms of living in Ethiopia for a couple of years with our younger kids and giving them that experience. Or maybe developing something that would draw grandkids to us, some kind of business that would you know, something that would draw grandkids to us as well. Maybe run a little fleet of houseboats rentals. and So I don't know. What I'm getting at is I don't know. But i am kind of learned to be okay with with that. The answer hasn't come yet, and but I know that if I was supposed to know, I would. So I'm kind of in this feeling that I've had before of, okay, you're on the right track, and I'm going to show you when it's time, but in the meantime... You're on the right track. There's a certain feeling, and I'm not fighting against God or His will, but I'm waiting for more of it to be revealed. And I don't know if that's helpful or not, but it does. It has to do with thoughts and feelings, and just trying to be in tune with what God wants you to do. And know you know when you're not. And sometimes those are the better lessons. And that way, when you're you've done things wrong, and you know that you've done things wrong, and you when you're making decisions that may not be wrong, but it has that kind of feeling, you're going, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> That feeling right there is I'm on the wrong track feeling, and I and I recognize it yeah. more readily. And and I kind of want to ask about that. So you talked about you know in the past, you have had um, situations where you've battled with, your, with yourself because you really wanted to do something that you had the feeling of, yeah, this may not be the right decision. This is what I want to do. I'm going to push through and and do this. And then what was the result of that? Honestly, in the big issues, probably not. <laughs> Um, but in uh, smaller things, d- absolute, yeah, absolutely, I have. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to, sh- to share those. 
honestly, but one was an investment opportunity. I became an accredited investor, and you, when that happens, you begin getting a lot of junk mail and things. And there was this one interesting opportunity that t- talked about investing in the movie business. And I thought, that could be kind of fun. So I started looking into it. I just started making phone calls. That's how you do things. You start in a place and you go. So I just, I didn't want to, the one that I heard of I wasn't interested in. I started just looking into it and reading about it just on the side. Just, it's kind of a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I learned that horror movies are a big return because they're super cheap movies and there's a good return. And I don't watch rated R movies. I just said, I'm not going to watch those. I don't have room in my life for, for that kind of stuff. And so I'm not going to, so I certainly don't want to invest in and support rated R movies. I came across this, and I won't name names, but I came across this little private place that's going to make a horror movie, but it's going to kind of be a little bit of a comedy spook. Business plan was we're going to get big horror picture names, but nobody knows their names. They only know their stage names, right? You see, Tom Cruise isn't in this. These are horror movies that you'd know You'd know the names. You know you, you know who started Friday the 13th. You don't know the guy, but you just know the character. You just know Freddy Krueger. and the t- So their idea was to get all these these actors would be fairly inexpensive, but they'd have big names, and they're going to do this kind of this spoof. And I read the movie thing. It was written by a guy who'd won the College Comedian Award. It was, I thought, ah, oh, let's throw it. And it wasn't a lot of money. And I wasn't worried about losing the money, but the point is, <laughs> I had that feeling. I just went like, this is not what you should be doing, and this is dumb, and don't do it, don't do it. And I just, so I just did it anyway. And the producer dies, and they fires the director, and they get a new director, and they make this rated R, violently rated R movie that, that I'll never be able to see, and the, the return, uh, we'll see, but I feel... I am invested in something that I do not support and I do not like. They did come and say, hey, we're, we're working on already taking investors for the sequel and the sequel. So I'm, mm, no, no, I'm not going to. I already feel terrible that I invested. But I had a, I did have a clear feeling of this is not right. And I just talked myself out of it because I thought I can afford to lose. I was thinking it was a financial prompting and it was more than that. So yeah. so there's one example. And I yeah, it, those are those are embarrassing things to tell when you didn't do things as a parent you know you do things that that I felt don't do that and and luckily kids are resilient and I've made mistakes as a parent my kids will will tell you that but not and I'm not talking about abusive things like that but just when I coach my kids in sports you know and I can be pretty intense And, and if a kid wants the coaching and seeks it that's okay but if not you know I feel like oh I've gone over the top there I've known I've gone over the top and yeah, they forgive me though, and uh, they turn out okay despite Dad's competitive, yeah, that's, drive, that's driving things. Good stuff. I can relate to the coaching part. I tried my best to ruin my son <laughs> with the sports. That those are some things that I look back at and go, oh, what was I thinking? But my son still loves me. I still love my son. Um, the only regrets are on my part. <laughs> yeah, yes. That I did. No, that, in fact, you know? I, you know, my oldest son was like one day, Dad, thanks so much for teaching me to, you know, play this because I opened up this opportunity. And so there's mixed signals. There's some good that comes of it. But I, yeah. just, I was just thinking that as an example of just being maybe too intense or having expectations that are too too rigid, not even too high. I think expectations should be high. Mm-hmm. But there's high expectations and then there's rigid how you're going to get there, and you're not progressing on my timetable that I've had to that I've had to repent of and apologize to my kids for. But our philosophy of raising children from the very beginning has been, don't wreck them. Hmm. Um, if we just don't wreck them, they're probably going to be great. 
kids want to they want to learn they want to progress they want to fit in they want to be socially productive and get along you know have friendships and you know our kids naturally have never been bullies and they've never been bad kids um, and so we just always have always from the very beginning felt like well if we just don't wreck them that's our parenting model and it might sound simple and even incomplete but that principle applies to so many places in parenthood where well let's just look at the situation what would wreck our kid? What wouldn't wreck our kid? You know what? Probably just doing less, they're going to be fine. And, and us overstepping is what's going to wreck them. Yeah, there's a, a principle for parenting. Don't yeah. wreck your kids. That's a great one. And the second would be, and even if you do a little bit, they're pretty resilient. If you'll apologize and change, they're probably going to recover as long as you step it back. Somehow they, so far, have risen above, and I hope that will continue yeah. to be <laughs> yep. the case. Yes, I know, I know some yep. of your kids, and they have. All right, so just want a couple more questions uh, that I want to ask you. You mentioned earlier that you're goal-driven, but that you're, what things are going to look like in the next three years are totally unknown. But do you have a goal right now that you're working towards? Yeah, sure. Yeah, we, I, have goal, I have goals at all levels. I always try to keep some kind of physical goal. I've run several marathons uh, for that very reason. You know, if part of your life is recreation or part of your life is, uh, what's the best way to say that? You can't be intense all the time. You need you need some diversion. And so, um, since I'm goal-driven, I even have goals in my, hey, I need some diversion. I need something that's not, but but it's actually resting to me to say, hey, let's, let's set a goal and let's go after it. I find that that's actually can be, that's the kind of personality that I have. So I have um, some short-range and some long range goals. The long range goals are typically spiritual. They're, let's turn some things over to God and we don't know where he wants us now, but let's be prepared and ready. So we, ha- we have some financial goals and we have some, like I say, some spiritual goals and I have some, some recreational goals, things I'd like to just do, things I'd like to accomplish, just th- that are just fun kind of things. How often do you review those goals? Um, I review my goals. My mother would be proud um, I am always in touch with my goals. I mean, I'm always, I review them. I, I don't want to say daily, but I'm aware of them daily. I think about them daily. I'm driven by what I'm trying to accomplish, um, for sure. So I have goals just in this my assignment at work. I have some things that I'd like to reach. And, and when you're not getting your goal, that you need feedback. You, that's your feedback. You say, things aren't going, I'm not going to get there if I keep doing what I'm doing. So let's. So then that starts you thinking, okay, what am I going to need to do? I kind of alluded to it when I'm in college and we're about to lose our my source of income. Okay, I, I'm going to have to provide. So, so it gets you thinking, and that's when inspiration comes and ideas come. Is And so if I don't have a goal, and not everyone is like this, I, I realize that. Mm-hmm. But I'm built by genetics or environment or a combination of... Um, if I don't have a goal, then I'm not going to uh, make adjustments to what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep on doing what I... And I've done that plenty. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've done that plenty in my life where I've realized, wait a minute, I'm not progressing there at all. I need to get some direction. I don't know if that's quite what you're asking. But no, I think so. I think that helps out a lot. And then from Scripture, is there an individual or a story that you relate most to and Why? Oh, that's a fun question. That's a good question. There is a character in the Book of Mormon by the name of Captain Moroni. He's very famous, but I maybe I love him for different reasons than most. He is a he's a military hero, but he absolutely loves freedom and he loves 
he loves people um, so much so that uh, I mean he's very driven by it I feel like he's a type or metaphor for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ defining characteristic is charity he loves people but driven because of that is his love for freedom there's no compulsion in Jesus Christ right there's a, it's come follow me but there is there's no force or no compulsion and I think part of the reason he died for us is so that we could have freedom his death makes it so we can overcome death and, and his uh, atonement his suffering in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross so it made it so we could overcome it, it, it expanded what's available to us it expanded our freedom we're not no longer victims to tyranny or to Satan or to sin or to death um, to me it's about freedom so I I see Captain Roni as kind of a as a, a hero and a champion for freedom and by freedom I don't mean just the ability to do whatever you want but but the ability to choose but also responsibility with freedom um, you become an agent for yourself you have some um, you own the consequences in your life and that's I think that is a theme for my life and maybe that's why I'm drawn to Captain Roni is uh, certainly genetics and environment uh, there's things outside of my control that happen to me but I've always felt and, and probably been taught by my by my mother and my father that um, I get to choose how I react to those things and so how my life turns out is up to me and there's certainly there's things that are outside my control but how I react to those things I get to choose and so I can choose to have faith I can choose to be happy um, I can choose to find ways to be successful in in whatever areas of life I want to be successful in and so that's a long answer to a short question but I think more important than who it is it's the why and that's the why that I view Captain Mona as a hero and Jesus Christ is a hero is because they have made it so that I can I can choose my outcomes I think from that the the answer to the this last question is pretty self-evident but liberty or security absolutely yeah absolutely liberty uh, security is nice when it's available when you can have it but I but I guess to me it's really not very secure if you have to give up your ability to control your outcome um, so um, you know if you were to say it a different way if you were to say chaos or stability that's a little different than liberty and security um, because as an entrepreneur you've got to be willing to face some chaos some risks some you know and so I'm I'm not risk averse uh, if you were asking me are you conservative or are you conservative even financially or in your life do you make conservative decisions or do you make risky decisions um, I would say there I um, I'm seeking for a balance I want Maybe, maybe chaos is the wrong word, but I want there to be some risk. I want there to be some unknown. Mm -hmm. I want to face things that I'm afraid of. I heard the Marines say, you, our training is you charge an ambush. And I, I like that thought is when there's an ambush, when there's danger and when there's a dilemma, you, you charge into it. You don't hesitate. You cut distance and put yourself on the offensive. And so I like that concept of of risk and chaos, but but you can go too far that way. You can go then your just life becomes dysfunctional and a mess. So I know I'm speaking to two different things, but I wanted to clarify it because liberty and security, I absolutely choose liberty, and and I'm not willing to give up liberty for 
guaranteed answers or, or security. But on the, the risk safety mode, I there is a place for some safety. You do want to provide some security mm-hmm. for your family. Um, so I, I see those as kind of two different issues, but yeah. I thought I should explain. You mentioned this earlier, and I think several times it's come back to this. Start in the place and keep going. Is that the phrase? That is the phrase. That is the Start mantra. in the place and keep going. Yeah, and if you can find the corner... You know, if you can start in a the corner and go, that's ideal. You know, so when you're cleaning the room, that's easy. There's the mm-hmm. corner. Start right there, son, and then go till your room is clean. You know, it looks like a big job, or you know, mm-hmm. you're weeding the garden. We always grow a big garden and yeah. you know, teach my kids. You know, don't just just grab out all the weeds. Start with this bean. Get the weeds all around it. Go to the next. Go to the next. Start in a place. Go till you're done. Well, I think unless you have any other words of wisdom or thoughts that you would really like to talk about, I think we're... No, Justin, I told you everything I know and then some stuff I made up. (laughs) So (laughs) the stuff I made up might be the best. So there you have it. Thank you, James Lee, for this conversation. I apologize to all for the little hum that's in the background. I did my best to knock it down as well as I could. The room we recorded in had a lot of mechanical noise that I didn't pick up until after we had finished recording. If you find the Know and Do podcast to be of value and of benefit to you, please come and like us on Facebook at Know and Do. Also subscribe to this podcast and review us. Let us know how we're doing. So one more time, just one more invitation. Start in a place and just keep going. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward, relying on the Savior. And as always, I have found that the key to happiness and peace in life is to know Jesus Christ and to do as he teaches. He made the lame walk and the dumb talk.